Record closing highs so far for the day. Blasting through a ceiling. In a record-setting IPO. Investors who have been riding the wave. When the stock market is booming, we're made to believe the economy is booming. But the stock market goes, so goes the wealth and the health and economy. So what exactly is the stock market measuring? 98.4 Capital FM. Good evening, good evening, good evening. Welcome to the Financial Forecast, where you can access accurate and timely global market outlook on demand. With Ken Gishinga, Chief Economist, Mentor Economics, and myself, Danny Muni, to listen to us, www.radio.capitalfm.co.ke forward slash listen live or download the iCapital FM radio app on any of your devices. Be the first to know what's happening on the global markets and around the world every Monday morning, early and bright, by visiting www.mentoria.co.ke to subscribe. You can reach us. For any inquiries, additions, comments on WhatsApp 0701-984-984 or you can tweet us at Capital FM Kenya, hashtag Financial Forecast. Ken, karibu sana. Thanks for having me, Danny. It's a <laughs> happy new month of July. Happy new month, yes. <laughs> we missed you last Tuesday. Yes, And Pole Sana, you had an emergency. <laughs> and here we are. I hope everything is okay. Everything is okay. I'm glad to be back. And you have quite a, quite a bit of ground to cover, given that uh, we've not seen each other for two weeks. Exactly. <laughs> so let's get rolling. Jumping straight into the equities and, you know, the markets and how they're performing. Lots of ups and downs everywhere across the world. The S&P all the way to the Nasdaq, the Dow Jones and the FTSE 100, the CAC, the Nikkei, the Hansen. What's what's the story? Well, first of all, I think it's good to say that uh, today is a holiday in the United States. Yes. Um, so it's not there's no trading um, taking place. Uh, but the big, big theme for this week is investors looking at what's happening in the crude oil space, Saudi Arabia, and Russia deciding to cut back on production. And uh, a lot of investors are worried whether that will uh, bring back inflation and what that will mean in terms of the Fed uh, outlook. Um, Obviously, the Fed, a lot of people expect that the Fed might raise interest rates twice this year, and the minutes for the last meeting will be released tomorrow. Uh, But so that sort of is what is creating that sort of uncertainty, and people are talking about a recession. There could be a recession. In fact, when you look at the yield curve, the yield curve really tells you the, what investors are looking into the future. And uh, a lot of people are saying when you see an inverted yield curve, you should actually be seeing a recession. Before we even explore the rest of the markets, what's a yield curve? Oh, that's a very good question, Danny. We tend to throw that phrase in finance very frequently. But a yield curve tells you the relationship between the returns and the duration. So pretty much um, in Kenya, we have the T-bills, 91-day T-bill, the 182, the 364. Then you have the longer-dated bonds. And typically, you expect that the longer uh, the longer a period an investor gives you money, the higher the return they should demand. So you'll find on the 91-day, yield, uh, 91-day auction, the yields tend to be the lowest. But if you go to the three-year bond, it tends to be the highest. It's supposed to be a nicely upwardly sloping um, curve that tells you as duration increases, the returns should also increase. If I give you money as an investor, uh, if I'm giving you longer-term money, I should expect uh, higher returns because you're staying with my money 
for a longer time. But now when you start seeing an inverted yield curve, pretty much you're trying to see, you're seeing uh, the returns on the shorter side are higher than the return on the longer side. And that's what's happening in America. It tells you people are seeing risk sooner than further out. And it tells you people actually thinking of a recession. And that's what's actually have, has been uh, in the, the case in the U.S. for the last few months. So the way the market is sitting, you're, 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 you're better off investing in 30-day or 90-day as opposed to 10 years. Oh, Absol- okay. Absolutely. So you find people want uh, are placing a higher risk on the shorter term. Because so there's something they are seeing in the shorter term than in the longer term. So essentially somebody's telling you you need to pay more for a short-term money than long-term money. And that's unusual. So it tells you that there is something that they are seeing and that has been the case. And what happened right now is that differential like in the U.S. between the two-year and the 10-year bond is actually at its steepest since 1981 when Paul Volcker was the Fed chairman. And typically when you see that scenario, you give yourself another six to two years uh, possibility of uh, seeing a recession. So it's uh, I think uh, people are nervous around there. Maybe that might make the Fed not increase interest rates. Maybe that might make the Fed continue pausing on raising interest rates because you don't want the language of a recession starting to get into businesses. But and, and maybe it's a stupid question, but what is this thing that you can say they are seeing to the extent that they want to put a higher risk on short time as opposed to long term? Well, I think they're looking at the data right now, the manufacturing data that, that has come out in the U.S. It's showing a slump of sorts. Um, if you look at uh, various uh, indicators on consumption, um, that was also dropped a bit. Uh, but also the possibility of the Fed raising further interest rates. So they are saying if with the current high interest rates, you're seeing manufacturing sort of subdued, how much more subdued will they be with higher interest rates? And that's why people are uh, allocating some possibilities of a recession in the not so near future. But that might change. Um, that might change. Obviously, the Fed remains committed to fighting inflation, uh, but even they are aware that uh, raising interest rates too high uh, might push the world into a recession. So they're caught between a rock and a hard place, and you, you don't want to under-tighten, and you also don't want to over-tighten. Interesting. Now, they, of course, it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a holiday in the U.S. today, but the S&P, uh, the Nasdaq, they seem to be at a, uh, on the green. And then when we go over to the other side with the, within Europe, the FTSE 100 is actually on the red. I have just seen the Prime Minister of the United Kingdom talking about the Bank of England. But then what's really making the market in the UK and in Europe quite unsettled. Well, if you look at the Fed and what they've done in terms of pausing interest rates, Europe has not done the same. It's continued to raise interest rates. The Bank of England has raised interest rates, the European Central Bank, and that is making economic activity uh, to come down. In fact, if you look at the German exports numbers that came out yesterday, we saw month on month those numbers are coming down. And Germany is known to be an export giant. So when those export numbers come down, it tells you things are not okay. Uh, Germany is actually entering into a recession. So I think those uh, people are really worried about that. But also the second quarter earnings are starting to come up. So we might see some good numbers from the health stocks. We, there are some sectors that might do well. So I think those second uh, quarter earnings might actually uh, prop up 
uh, the stock market right now. But I think the big theme is, you know, they need they are, they are fighting inflation, but at what cost? That is the central message that investors are thinking about. Right, and then right here within the continent, the big uh, the, the 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 tigers of the continent in terms of the economy. What what's the outlook? I think the big story is Nigeria right now. The Nigerian um, equities market is at its highest point in 15 years. So there's quite a bit of confidence in what the new president is doing. Um, he's He's been quite brutal. I mean, he's removed subsidies. He's um, coordinated the exchange rate market. Uh, the Naira now is floating. Uh, so that has had pain on Nigerians. But what it's also done is it's created confidence. Um, in the market. So right now we are seeing it at its highest point. A lot of people now are, are engaging more and I think that is the powerful story. Uh, South Africa, I think the fact that they are starting to get a grip on this um, load shedding, I think that's a good thing. It went down for t- from 10 hours a day now to about 3 hours a day. Yeah. Um, so that has been um, um, a good story. Um, in Kenya, it's still looking at how our fiscal and monetary policy is we are seeing tightening on both monetary policy and fiscal policy, and that might lead to a slowdown. And when you see a slowdown, that means st- the stocks actually might affect it. But there are people who are saying, you know, stocks are at the lowest point. This is a good time to buy in the dips. So we might actually see some um, some, 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 some rebounding on that. North Africa? Um, I'm not sure. I'm not really followed out this week what's been happening uh, in um, North Africa, but I know Tunisia has been on the on on the radar in terms of its yes. debt struggling. Yes. It's always on these top ten videos you see on WhatsApp all the time on <laughs> countries that are likely to default. Uh, default. Yes. Um, but yeah, um, I think for me that has been the standout story uh, in terms of I think Tunisia continues to be the concern um, in North Africa in the right North now. Of Africa. Yeah. Commodities, metals, gold is up, silver is up, copper is down, steel is up, iron ore is down. Also a bit of a mixed feeling within the metals. Would there be anything that is really uh, speaking towards this kind of fluctuation? Um, I think it's the, the, the conflicting views on global demand. On one side, people are expecting the Fed to raise interest rates, which will slow down demand. But on the other side, people are still seeing um, there's still some activity around some of the key sectors in construction. And that, so depending on where you play, that has been the big thing. But I think with the overview that uh, there could be a recession coming, my outlook is most of those things will, will be in the red moving forward. Agricultural commodities as well, quite interesting story here. Everything seems to be down apart from maybe tea and palm oil, the rest, wheat, canola, coffee, rice. But the big story within the agricultural commodities is sugar. What's happening with sugar? (laughs) There is a lot happening in the sugar space right now. And in fact, um, the MPC uh, notes last week, you know, last week we had the first MPC under the new governor. The new governor. And indeed, and very interesting notes were shared and uh, really look at the inflation numbers that came out, uh, 7.9%, but more on the MPC, it was really focusing on what are the key drivers of inflation. And obviously, they talk about the vegetable, the carrots, uh, the potatoes, but there was a key slide on sugar and how they are both global factors and domestic factors. If you look at countries like India, 
they actually want to start blocking exports um, of sugar uh, to the rest of the world. Uh, then, so there is both Thailand s- exactly. So there are many countries that are having both uh, climatic conditions that are inhibiting the growth of sugar. But even here in Kenya, you know, we see obviously Uganda and Kenya, the border there, there's always that uh, big um, um, sugar economy there. The outlook there really is there is a demand with the growing populations. And I think this is, when you talk about trade, we always talk about import and export. But if we start seeing what's happening in East Africa, where countries like Tanzania are saying we need to reduce our exports to Kenya, we need to make sure we are growing for our own population. But the people who are, the farmers who are growing these things want higher prices, so they want to export. So there's always that tension. Um, So I think sugar has been interesting because of just uh, the production um, dynamics happening in there. But also remember in the Finance Act, there was an excise tax that was put on sugar. At that time, the CS said that excise tax was really to discourage sugar consumption in Kenya. Uh, there was a problem of high sugar consumption leading to diabetes. And that was the argument that was given and we needed to have that. So you have both a fiscal tax being loaded, but also you have this problem with production. And I think that's the reason you're finding now the prices of sugar uh, really uh, going yeah, high. Yeah, exactly. And actually needed that special slide by itself. And sugar is one of these commodities that much as you'd want to say you don't use is very important in and essentially in the manufacturing of a lot of everything that we end up using in our day-to-day lives. So with the cut of exports by these uh, large sugar-producing countries, then what does that mean for some of these products that we end up buying? which need the use of sugar either imported or locally made? Do they be then become more expensive if then the access to this commodity that is like a main ingredient in, in, in making it up then is not that available? Well, there is a concept that I think I've raised on this show uh, in the past about what we call elasticity of demand. You know, how much does the demand of a product change when prices go up? And in my assessment, sugar is in those categories that we consider to be a bit inelastic, where at any point in price, people want to consume it. It's because it's so deep in our culture, so deep in our behavior. You know, we talked about behavioral economics. Yes. And you find not too many people have substitutes for sugar and such. And because of that, uh, even from an economy perspective, if you wanted to raise revenue, it's almost like fuel you tax it and you'll raise revenue because people need to consume it at, at almost any 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 point in time and i think that's why it's always it's always targeted by our policymakers in terms of excise uh, tax and as much as they say that it's it's about health reasons but i think it's about policymakers knowing that this is so tied to our consumption pattern so when prices go up obviously the dynamics change in terms of export ex- import and export and obviously in western kenya that uh, has been a big uh, sector there. And the new administration has said they need to revive it. Uh, but the reality is it's the production patterns are much cheaper in Uganda, in, in, in the region, that still um, that those trade dynamics will continue. In as much as we are talking about an ESC harmonized um, economy, I think we'll still get to see a lot of imported sugar 
are filtering through our borders. Interesting. And you did mention crude. It has been uh, gaining. Now it's up to $70 a barrel within the crude itself. But then Brent is actually up to 76. Saudi has, of course, said they're going to extend and continue with more cuts on uh, oil production. What is informing maybe the growth of uh, oil in terms of consumption? Is Are there industries that are demanding more of the oil within the global markets than that they, 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 they see the need to extend in the production cuts? Uh, well, you know, you talk about the aviation industry, which you talked about here, and how it's facing what is called a pent-up demand. Um, airline tickets have really gone up because of that huge demand. So there's still huge pockets of demand for fuel. Uh, but I think globally, there's an expectation that there will be a global slowdown. And any time there is that expectation, fuel prices go, go down. Now, what the OPEC countries, the Saudis, the Russia do is they don't want to see oil prices go beyond a certain level. So obviously, they'll naturally now uh, play their tools in terms of cutting production to make sure that there's a flaw to those prices because many of their budgets, talk about countries like Nigeria, almost 70% of their budget is funded by, by, by oil money. So there are those countries that are highly dependent that they can't afford prices to go beyond below a certain level. So those price cuts, I think, will be expected. They'll happen. I think it's about pr- really uh, putting a flaw on those oil prices. Uh, but, um, you know, if the global economy actually gets into a recession, we might actually see further, further, further production cuts. Of interest, which I think we can't really ignore, is France. And what's happening in France is is quite interesting because I have not seen that scale of riots in, in my short life. But what comes as, as a surprise is stocks in France are actually trading higher. What could explain this level of confidence within that market in relation to what's happening whether politically or otherwise informed in the in the in the in, within the boundaries of France I think France is a special country I think they've been able to separate a uh, political agitation and the economic uh, development of the country if you remember part of part of those demonstrations were about the age of retirement moving being moved up by just one year I think about 62 to 63 and that caused massive riots without consensus without consensus now I think you're the one who sent me a video of people actually uh, protesting and burning things. And, and some eating outside a in, restaurant. In a cafeteria. Like nothing <laughs> is going on. So I think France has just mastered the art. They have, you know, this, this is the home of the French Revolution. This is the home of really agitation for rights and democracy. So I think it's so ingrained in their life that they can actually see the possibility of agitation, but also economic uh, development and they don't see it like in many other countries as sort of like uh, it stops. You know, here in Kenya we talk about mandamano and everything stops. In fact, we even stop having these shows. Yes. <laughs> this mandamano. Yes. But I think they it's so ingrained that you can actually agitate and still have economic development, which is quite interesting because it means they can advocate for uh, more liberties without having a huge um, impact on economic growth. So I think it's it's a good story and I think it's something. Uh, maybe even Kenya we need to look at. Uh, this is my theory, and, 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 and call me out on it if it's actually utter bollocks. The, what I think is it's, it's something that we've tried to push, on, to push for on this show for the longest time where 
a lot of the confidence within our market, especially our stock market and the equities market and, 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 and that whole top line should be locally driven. Because I think the investor confidence that we are seeing in France is not particularly from outside. My theory, I don't know. And it's most likely from within the local businessmen, manufacturers, industrialists, population that is actually keeping the activity within the CEC, the CAC 40, within in France to continue being active, whereas they're still on the streets burning everything they can put their eyes on. And then that brings some kind of, you know, stability or reason, which in from the outside world does not exist. You're absolutely spot on, Danny. When you talk about our Kenyan foreign labor participation in the stock market, what you've said is true. It's about almost 70% of our stock market is dependent on foreign uh, participation. So when the interest rates in the U.S. go up, all that money goes to the West. That's not the case in France, where, as you say, there's more local ownership of the stock market. There is still foreign money that comes in, but the typical Frenchman, as part of his portfolio, has stocks as part of his pension funds. They have stocks. So there's a big participation you see there, so much so that there's less volatility. Even when interest rates in the U.S. go up, it doesn't sort of have that major impact. Actually, it's local news that makes an impact. It's not so here in Kenya. You know, we had the MPC here last week, and a lot, very few people actually knew it was an MPC meeting because it, it has almost virtually no impact on the stock market. You know, when you go to the US or the UK, when the central banks meet to talk about interest rates, a trader will tell you that's a trading moment. That's a trading event because that will have an impact on the stock market because if the Fed reduces interest rates, you find the stock market will go up and vice versa. In Kenya, it's not quite that way. The policy transmission signal from the central bank to the real economy is not that strong. So I think to your point, we need to look at Nigeria. We need to look at what the president has achieved in just, what, a month? Yes, you know, he's, a month. I mean, he's, it's, he's, it's been brutal. And how he's, old is this guy? I think he's, he's quite old. Almost 80. 82. Eh? Yeah. Past. Yeah. Um, but he is pushing Nigeria to become a market economy. Um, he's taken off Basically, this. what we have here that we are not really keen on taking advantage of. Absolutely right. And you know, Kenya was supposed to be the, the, I mean, in the session paper number one of 1986, actually set Kenya as almost the first, first market, market economy. economy. So we need to ask ourselves, why are we not seeing that activity? Because we don't have the currency problems Nigeria has. We have a very transparent, at least most of the time, um, ex exchange system. rate. Uh, we have uh, we don't have a big subsidy. It's only last year because of the global issues, but we don't have a culture of subsidies. It's only very temporary that subsidies are there when there's almost a huge crisis. So I think there has to be that build push, even amongst Kenyans. You know, and Kenyans talk about investment opportunities. We rather think about quails and blockchain and Bitcoin before about thinking about um, stocks. Yeah. You know. So I think sometimes we need to rationalize our investment, even the typical chama, the typical individual when they want to think of investment opportunities, they'll, people are always very quick on some of the more wacky <laughs> opportunities. Yes. But somebody will tell you, you know, Safaricom stock is at a quite an affordable rate. We still, that culture 
still hasn't um, seeped through. Seeped through, and also it's also part of like also our obsession with real estate. You know, we've had when people get some lump sum, the first thing they think about is real estate. Land. Let me buy this. Let me sit on it. It will appreciate. So, it, to a certain extent, also real estate has contributed to the death of sort of other sectors. People looking at other sectors. Absolutely. We'll take a quick break. When we come back, we focus on Kenya. We have to look at the monetary policy uh, committee meeting that was held last week and the numbers on inflation that have just come out. A bit of some good news just reported by Bloomberg in the last few minutes. And we'll get on to all that. You can reach us on 0701984984 or tweet us at Capital FM Kenya, hashtag Financial Focused. Welcome back. Now, Bloomberg has just reported that Kenya's economic growth has beat estimates with the end of the agricultural slump that we've witnessed in the last four quarters, which was a steep decline. Have we really can gotten that much rain to be able to say now the agricultural slump that we were going through has ended? Things are getting better. I think the ag sector um, had a really rough patch and I think um, the sector is getting better in terms of just the climatic conditions. So I think to see the the ag numbers coming in, I think it was quite positive, about 5.8 for the ag sector. So I think it, it's it's positive. I think we have to remember that Kenya is really a services economy. What really drives Kenya is a services economy. This is your accommodation and your restaurants and your transport and your services. These are the things that are really, you know, you know, you talk about Nairobi. Nairobi, it was founded as a depot on the path between the railway from Mombasa to, that was supposed to go to, to Uganda. So it's, it's a very services based. So I think we need to look at, ag is very important, but we need to look at the services. And I think that's where the real question is. And I think the services are still doing doing very well, just looking at the numbers uh, that KNBS uh, public, uh, released today, the Q1 uh, GDP, GDP number. So I expect to see that robustness, but now people ask, with higher interest rates, with higher taxes, you know, you saw the Matatus already uh, just announced. Just announced. Increase yeah, to what extent? So the second half of the year typically is more vibrant than the first half. That's the time the government is releasing its uh, money for the new fiscal year. But now with these new higher taxes, higher interest rates, I feel that robustness might actually be, be dampened. Because the report says the GDP expanded 5.3% in the first quarter and analysts were expecting a 3.3%. Agriculture grew to 5.8% after four quarters of heavy decline. So Bloomberg's story is GDP has grown 5.3%. Okay. What is this GDP? <laughs> what is this 5.3? Okay, let, let's remove the GDP perspective. What is this 5.3? Where is this 5.3 actually being registered in? You know, as per Bloomberg's report, that's a really, really important uh, question, um, Danny. We talk about GDP, and of course, GDP stands for gross domestic product. This is the total value of goods and services uh, produced in an economy. Yes. And one of the most common questions many Kenyans ask is: We see these rosy numbers, five percent overall growth, but sometimes we don't feel it. You know, that has been a question for the last seven, eight years. And I think it's always been mm, more like ten, more like ten actually. And I think it's because much of our growth is still being driven by the public sector, public investments in infrastructure and roads. Uh, so you find the 
credit to private sector, the private sector growth has not been as as robust. And especially now with higher taxation, higher fuel prices, higher interest rates, that private sector. But the iron, irony is most people are in the private sector. So you have a public sector that is really growing, but the participants in the public sector tend to be much fewer. But the private sector, which is a bit subdued, is where almost everybody else is. And that's why there's always that dichotomy of the numbers look good. Yes, we see roads are being built, but it, it's not infiltrating in our pockets. I think what these statistics now need to start doing is to start breaking down these reports into private sector growth and public sector growth. Because these are oranges and bananas. Exactly. If you see a strong private sector growth, now you start feeling money is circulating in our pockets. But that 5.5%, I can tell you, almost maybe 80% of that is being driven by public sector public sector growth. So that has to be the thing. And I really hope the administration is able to really get into uh, enabling private. But how do you enable private sector growth? It's about interest rates. If interest rates are going to go up, the businesses become lethargic. lethargic. You even start laying off people because now you have to service um, higher installments every month. So that money that you could have sent on uh, employees, you probably have to maybe reduce one or two to ha- to afford the higher uh, monthly installments. So I think these are the things that we really need to think. We need to have a private sector-led growth in this country. That is when you'll see money circulating in this economy. So then how can we then you know change these reports and, and, and give them the true face of what the economy looks like as opposed to just Bloomberg reporting and saying the GDP has expanded by 5.3% and we all look at each other, it's headlights dear, where is this 5.3? I'm not feeling it, you're not feeling it, the next person is not feeling it. But then there's a report and it's there and anybody outside the world looking at it says, oh, you know, Kenya has grown by 5.3% in the first quarter. It's it's not a true reflection. Well, I think, first of all, that has to go down to the, with the business journalists because when these reports are released, they're normally at conferences with the uh, public policymakers. So I think also the business journalists need to go a bit deeper and ask how much of this is being driven. When you talk about internationally, it's a bit easier because now you talk about remittances. These are Kenyans abroad sending money and you can be able to measure that. And in fact, one of the big talking points this week was the fastest source of diaspora, the fastest growth in diaspora remittances is Uganda. Is Uganda. Yes. You know, when you talk about diaspora, we always talk about US, US. and the UK. Yeah. But they're Kenyans. It tells you there's a Kenyan private sector in Uganda. There's somebody running a restaurant in very Kampala. Very active. Very active. So you find that those numbers are easier to track. But locally, you know, we ask ourselves, how do we know that the private sector is doing well? In fact, you know, it's not doing well when you look at non-performing loans. And we saw the non-performing loans have gone up from 14.1 to 14.6. It's on my list of questions. <laughs> so it tells you that <laughs> the private sector is struggling and these numbers are being driven by government spending, uh, government uh, largesse. And and so it skews the numbers. And, and I, I think that leads to that dichotomy of we see rosy numbers on paper, but we don't feel it in our pockets. Our pockets. Yeah. Uh, is this sustainable? Having... A GDP report coming out purely driven by public sector or largely, not purely, largely driven by, by, by public sector, whereas we have where majority of the population is the private sector that's really struggling. Is it a sustainable model for us to be able to say we are seeing growth in terms of GDP? 
it's not very sustainable. In fact, I think it can actually lead to serious inequalities in society. Because when you talk about public sector growth, you're talking of uh, infrastructure projects and contractors. So I, as a roads contractor, will be tenderpreneurs. You'll be paid 20, 100 million to build this road. Now, with that 100 million, will I put it in a way that will reach many people? No. No. Paul, you just put up a mall somewhere and that's it. So you don't circulate as much. So you find these very few wealthy tenderpreneurs, but the must the vast population is 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 down so that's the problem it actually drives remember what i told you the gini coefficients in inequalities where you have correct few people and actually the key thing now for economic growth becomes your access and connections to people while in a private sector led growth it's about innovation competitive advantage how do i come with a better product when you have a public sector led growth is like who do i know who are the procurement people Who's the new in this administration? So you, it, it skews even the the strategy for growth. You start looking for networks as opposed to you know, investing in innovation and competitive advantage and nice products and and price control. So it it has it it, it, it has vast vast uh, um, implications um, on on an economy. So it's not sustainable. Definitely, it drives it leads to higher inequalities, as I've said, and it can start creating um, unemployment issues. And right now, you know, people are talking about taxes are going up, yet unemployment is high. So we start even having agitation, as you've been seeing on social media. The GDP, you know, when they when they do the measuring and the measurements, does it encas- uh, um, encapsulate the access to basic services, let's say health? education, you know, these small things which seem to have a social element to them, uh, whether they are really good or the level they are at and how many people can have access to these kind of things? What it measures is the value of those services given. So if it's in the example of a school, it would be what would be the value of those services provided. So you look at the school fees that were paid by students in that semester and they aggregate if it's in healthcare, it would be what are the services provided in the healthcare sector? So you start looking at all the services that the level five hospitals provide. What's the value of that? So it's it's a measurement of the services provided. So that can, in a way, it can tell you about levels of access, because but it might not be very accurate because you might find somebody in uh, the Nairobi hospitals are providing very high valued services. So it shows you that the value has gone up, but it doesn't tell you about equity. So in the on net effect, you're like, yes, more money was spent on health, but it doesn't tell you where. Chances by are maybe one percent. By one percent. And then ninety percent of the Nairobi population didn't have then the access that they needed for the health services. In fact, that report on the Gini inequality Gini coefficient talked about much of the demand in Kenya is driven by the top twenty percent, the top quintile. I think almost forty percent of consumption in Kenya is driven by the top 20%, the top quintile. That's that, that's a staggering number. And that's why I said we need to think more of private sector growth. Even it, it, it's more of an equalizer because it enables more people to participate in, in, in the formal economy. Last week, um, the, the Monetary Policy Committee had their first meeting under the new governor. And experts within mentor economics 
with a report that I saw were weighing in the costs that may arise from the triple tightening of the economy informed by higher taxation, increasing interest rates. And and therefore, with this going on, what's what, what do you think is the position of inflation, really? Yeah, so inflation, as you said, the numbers are still quite high, 7.9%, and the central bank has tightened. So we are seeing three levels of tightening. What I, in that report, what I said, the monetary tightening, that's when the central bank raises interest rates. So as a business, it means your loans become more expensive. More expensive. No Even f- personal, right? Exactly. Yes. Then there's fiscal tightening, where now you're seeing the VAT on fuel coming up, so your fuel becomes more expensive. A thousand shillings today will buy you about five liters of fuel. A year, two years ago, that there's would be... a time it felt nice putting a thousand shillings because you'd get more than 12 liters. Exactly. Then there's a third tightening, which most economists don't talk about a lot. Is what I call household tightening. Mm. And there's a very interesting story on the business day la- last week that talked about households earning 300,000 shillings and over. And that's a fairly well-off household were reducing their spending, not because they've been affected by fuel or, or interest rates, but because they're uncertain about the outlook. You see, people spend, part of behavioral economics, people spend when they believe the outlook is they'll, they'll get more in future. The environment is exactly good to bring more. Especially business people. You know, salaried people, you know, end month will always get paid. Business people will spend knowing that there'll be more business coming in. But if I don't see any business in the pipeline, I'll tend to conserve my spending. So that article talked about households earning 300,000. So these are well-off households reducing their spending because of uh, the outlook being unclear. And for me, that's very pervasive because I've just told you the top 20% is what drives 40% of our consumption. consumption. So that 20, top 20% says even us, we, we, are, we, we are staggering. We, we are even us, we are we're not actually staggering. We're doing okay, but we just don't want to spend because now we don't know how things are looking. Now that puts a big pressure on production because it means the producer, the restaurant owner now who was depending on this 20% to come might say, okay, maybe I need to even close my restaurant earlier because my partners are not coming. So I think that third level of tightening is far more profound. It's not tied to interest rates or taxes, but it turns to confidence. Confidence about the future, confidence about, you know, what will happen post Saba Saba and all these things. And people tend to reduce. And that, that type of tightening is very dangerous to an economy because in an economy where consumption is driven by that uh, quintile. There seems to be a lot of disorganization, or maybe for for, for better word, confusion within the powers that be at the helm of you know financial bodies. And it seems as there was some sort of cannibalism, you know, between them. At what point do our fiscal policy and Kenya's monetary policy pathways? Do they are they supposed to speak to one another? Are they supposed to mirror each other? What what would be the ideal for our fiscal policy and our monetary policy? Well, they have independent objectives, uh, but they should talk to each other. I think the concern most Kenyans are having is the taxation that is coming on the fiscal end is pushing inflation. You talk about the VAT on fuel that's coming up. 
it means higher cost of fuel. It means your inflation goes up. When inflation goes up, it means the CBK must come in and, and raise tighten. interest rates. Now, when they raise interest rates, it also means the cost of government debt becomes expensive. higher. And the only way that government can be able to pay that for that expensive debt is, is to, raise, to raise taxes. So you get into this very vicious Cy- cycle, cycle that if unchecked, I think I think in the UK, remember that shortest period <laughs> by the, the shortest prime minister, <laughs> Liz, Trust. Liz Trust, that was a big thing. There was such a big disconnect between uh, what the Bank of England was doing and what the Treasury was doing. Uh, Liz Trust was very keen on cutting taxes and that was driving up inflation. And inflation in the UK, it's quite severe because if, if, if it goes up, it means interest rates have to go up. So the central bank had to come in. Um, they even had to do some QE and, and pass, purchase some bonds just to bring it up. And it was, I mean, they only survived for one month and they had to be, they had to leave. As opposed to in the United States when, you know, you look at the time for Ben Bernanke and Timothy Geithner during the recession, there was some sort of coordination. Now everybody asks, so whose responsibility is it to make sure that fiscal policy and monetary policy are harmonized. And there are many answers to that. You could say the leaders of both should be talking more. You look at some countries like Spain, there's actually somebody called the Minister of Economy. This is somebody different from finance. the central bank governor and finance. This is somebody separate from treasury and separate from the central bank, but it's the Minister of Economy. And their work is to make sure that these two guys are always talking. So the question is, should that be a solution where we have a docket of ministry for economy, perhaps even the prime CS, you know, who's has been in these conversations for over 30 years. Maybe that should be um, his or the deputy president to make sure that these two are always moving hand in hand because individually they have their own metrics. CBK is being measured by inflation. Um, uh, Treasury is being measured by the fiscal deficit. So they have to hit their targets, whether it's conflicting or not. So you need somebody who should come and say, hey, is there a way you guys... A mediator. Exactly. Of but sorts. I don't see the need of creating a new post for that. It, it seems quite straightforward to me. You know, the if 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 the, the, the body in charge of fiscal does not see the effect of not being able to figure out the monetary policy and 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 how it makes it difficult for them from a fiscal perspective then maybe that's where the problem is because it's it seems quite clear cut well remember the fiscal guys are highly uh, under the influence of the IMF and the IMF is telling them if you guys want loans you need to raise your taxes you need to raise VAT on fuel so they're under that straight jacket whether that will drive inflation or not is that's another person's problem to them they are being told you if you want imf loans you need to raise revenue and these are the ways <laughs> to raise revenue let cbk deal with you know i'm pulling off from the economics i'm now becoming a more of a philosopher <laughs> if if you enforce mm-hmm. an 8 to 16 percent on fuel everything following that chain becomes expensive so for instance if let's say you ha- you were you are collecting taxes from a million vehicles fueled in a month and that number reduces to 666,000 from a million 
and everything else down that chain ex- exactly in the same format goes just reducing and reducing and reducing how then does this help you achieve what this physical management plan is supposed to help you achieve i, I mean daniel see where you're coming from uh, and sometimes it it does get cloudy when you have that i think the challenge it, it gets cloudy is we don't have a harmonized economic view what we have is the different engines working on their different objectives i think what i'm calling for is a harmonization to say what's the overarching let's not talk about fiscal policy or monetary policy what is the economic policy of kenya we should only start with the economic and the economic policy should be able to be around we are creating jobs high quality jobs that give kenyans dignity that give kenyans purpose that should be the big picture production now we should ask ourselves how does fiscal policy enable that vision and it should be around actually lower vat lower the cost of production so that more people participate on monetary policy lower interest rates so that people can get cheap loans the way we used to get them during the kibaki administration so i think that lack of that bigger objective and i think that's where maybe the presidency needs to come in to say the the main objective the hustler nation is we want more jobs in fact we want to publish in fact i wish they would follow the american way and say every month we want to publish jobs created in every county by sector so if it's but, in but, yeah. but but we are creating jobs however they are masonry jobs w- well yeah but uh, there are many people who are not in masonry we have other other we have you know content creators we have swimming instructors you know we have cooks and chefs so we want to see and i wish we would go that direction of saying in vihiga county which, how many jobs were created and which are the sectors so that if i wanted to invest in vihiga i'd say hey i'm seeing the bed and breakfast space is doing very well right why don't i put a nice airbnb in vihiga town but now that data is not coming up if anything you'll get once a year you'll be told f- a million jobs were created so i wish we would go that path of jobs now we need get on jobs and ask ourselves what are the barriers to creating jobs yes we can create housing jobs that's one of them but we have almost 13 other sectors that are not connected to housing even they need those jobs the ratio of what you just mentioned non performing loans has increased from 14.6 to 14.9 of course now with the new introduced newly introduced uh, rate interest rate hikes then there's likely going to be either more non performing loans or re- reduced um interest in liquidity right the sectors that were highlighted within the report in the first uh, monetary policy committee meeting with the governor kamau thuge manufacturing trade real estate transport and communication with the triple tightening that we've just discussed what's expected of 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 some of these sectors especially manufacturing and trade in terms of businesses and maybe job creation well well, well then i said one of the weaknesses i said of our system which sometimes can be a strength is what i said is a weak transmission signal um from the central bank to the real economy why can why is that sometimes a benefit somebody might ask it's a benefit like right now when they have raised interest rates but unlike in uk in the us where it automatically hits you as a consumer banks in kenya still have a choice some will raise interest rates some, some will hold, will hold. and even some will lower maybe for their own because they want to attract attract more i think 
So that weakness, I think sometimes it can be a strength because it doesn't mean automatically uh, your loans will become more expensive. That would be the case in the West. Automatically, your mortgage will be more expensive. In Kenya, it comes down to the banks. Some banks, and you and I have talked to a couple of them, and they're like, yeah, we'll, we'll do so. But, but it, there is a decision. So banks, and you remember the Kenya Bankers Association actually um, issued a statement at some point saying they sh- we should not raise interest rates more. Yes. So, may, so may tell you some banks actually in this last cycle might actually not um, raise interest rates, which would be good for businesses. So I think that's sometimes the advantage of a weak transmission signal that banks also have uh, the as, yeah, chance the, to the make latitude. the decision. Exactly. So in terms of businesses and job creation, then if the banks decide not to raise rates, we might see some sort of, well, let's say plateau or increased demand to the extent of growth. Well, even if they don't raise rates, right now it's very high. The average bank loan today, Danny, it's about 18%. I've talked to some businesses where people are borrowing from banks to be able to pay salaries. When you're in that situation where you're borrowing from banks to pay salaries, it means you're not getting enough customer throughput that you have to go to the banks. So it tells you it's not sustainable. In fact, some banks should actually even be bold enough and say, we are reducing. Despite the policy signal going up, from our assessment is we are seeing people are straining and we should actually reduce. I wish I would see a few banks uh, go that direction because when you see the numbers of non-performing loans go up, it tells you there's some strain. It tells you cash is not circulating as it's meant to be. So I really hope that there will be some banks that diverge from that and you're able at least to bring some free because as it is, 18% in this economy, I think it's still very, very high. In an unusual bi-monthly monetary policy committee meeting, they acknowledged inflationary pressures and cited elevated global risks. Now, in, in, in the report coming out this week from Mentoria is that the global economy seems to be steadying. And the first quarter of the U.S. economy grew faster at 2% from the estimated one3 But what's of interest is that more and more Americans were spending on services rather than goods. So what's, what are these global risks that, that, the, that the MPC in this unusual meeting saw that maybe are not reflecting really in real life in the global economy? I think the risks they're seeing is uh, possibly the Russia-Ukraine war um, escalating, uh, what that could mean on oil prices globally, on commodity prices like wheat, uh, but also the idea of Fed raising interest rates, um, particularly with a positive Q1 numbers, like what you've just said, the Fed might say, actually, we still have room to do a bit of tightening. People are not quite um, uh, uh, tight. Uh, tight as we expected. So I think those are the global risks. But also China, which was supposed to be a big driver of growth, the numbers are still very weak. China is um, under, it's facing a triple crisis in terms of uh, the property market, is slumped, um, debt levels are quite high. So the idea of a Chinese drive of this year, we you know, early, I think the first episode on this show, we said China and India will contribute almost 40% of global growth. I think those numbers have really been scaled down now. I think China is not, uh, it might take time um, before that gets. So I think those are the global risks uh, that the CBK possibly was seeing and what that would mean on the currency because if the Fed continues on tightening, it means even our shilling 
which has hit 140 now, Danny, might actually start approaching Extend 150, and that will have uh, other issues. So I think those are some of the, that might even have inflationary issues because we are a net importer. So the cost of importations become even more expensive. So I think maybe they try to they're trying to get ahead of the curve uh, by doing that. Yeah. Is there any likelihood, really, that the Fed would raise rates in the next sitting, in the next meeting? Um, I'd say 89% consensus within the economist circles. Uh, there's an 89% consensus that there'll be at least a 25 basis points um, interest rates uh, hike at least twice this year. So yeah, still, yeah, this year it's still, it's still, and if you look at, uh, obviously the minutes uh, will be released tomorrow of the last meeting, but they talked about more restrictions. That was one of the phrases Jerome Powell used. There'll be more restrictions coming up. So yeah, I think I expect still, I think those risks are still remain quite uh, alive. Maybe quickly before we close, import duty for cars has been increased by 25%, from 25% to 35%. Quite steep, I think. What would be the effect of that in our you know, manufacturing, motoring industry? No, I, I really feel for the motoring industry. I think uh, the post-COVID impact, first of all, it affected the supply chains. Uh, factories were closed down during that COVID period. So there was a big demand when we got out of COVID. So there was that pent-up demand, like in aviation, for cars. You know, a, a normal car like a Vitz used to be about 700,000. <laughs> Do you know the cost of a Vitz today? No idea. It's about 1.3 million, almost double the price. So now when you talk oh. about another 10% on top, because right now it's 25% excise, and you go to 10%, you know, a Vitz would probably be going for about, you know, 1.5. That's a, what you'd have gotten for like a premium. Right. <laughs> you know, yeah. <laughs> but then does, then does it do anything for the local assembly motoring industry? Are there any benefits that accrue to the benefit of the local uh, assembly industry in, in, with this kind of increase? I mean, you could theoretically say it makes a case for that, but still, you know, the, the, the percentage of Kenyans who are buying showroom cars here that have been assembled here, it's still a small percent. I don't think the prices have tilted enough to make a case. Now, you know, we've seen attempts at doing it. We've seen the Mobius of this world coming to do that. But I don't think there's still that culture shift has been profound to be able to push because the cost of power is still quite high. It's the cost high. is cost of I mean if you look at those NPC notes, they talk about the cost of energy is still quite high. So I I don't see I just think it's going to reduce demand for for those vehicles. I don't see it pushing I mean you might see you know, avenues such as other avenues coming in in terms of like the motorbike space, electric motorbikes. But that's still sort of like a, a, a small percentage. So I, I just see lower demand. So, you know, auto dealers need to prepare for, you know, just tougher times. Ken Gishinga, Chief Economist, Mentor Economics, thank you very much for this edition of Financial Forecast. Catch up with this latest episode as well as previous episodes of the Financial Forecast on Capital FM SoundCloud page or anywhere else you get your podcast from. Thank you very much. We'll see you again Tuesday. Ken? Always a pleasure. Thank you.
Capital 